National Stroke Awareness Week this year is between September the 17th and the 23rd. With this in mind, I thought it would be a good opportunity to find out about strokes. And with me in the studio, I have Dr. Neil Spratt. Dr. Spratt is a staff specialist neurologist at the John Hunter Hospital and a research fellow at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Spratt, thank you for coming in and talking to me. You're welcome. Thanks, Iris. How did you come to specialise in strokes? Uh, well, I guess uh, the first thing is I got interested in neurology. Um, from from a doctor's point of view, neurology is fascinating because it's, um, it's like Sherlock Holmes, lots of uh, detective work. But I think it's also interesting uh, because it's to do with the brain. Mm. And then stroke particularly interested me because it can have very diverse manifestation. It's a disease of the brain, and depending which part of the brain is affected, there can be lots of uh, different uh, effects. But the other big thing that got me interested in is it's such a big problem. Um, it affects so many people worldwide, and that it tends to have been fairly neglected uh, mm. in the past. And, and I always had an interest in research, and I saw this as a really... Uh, great opportunity to get into research in stroke mm. um, and that's what I have done uh, and uh, and fortunately uh, last year when I finished my PhD studies um, I was able to come back here to Newcastle uh, and and undertake both clinical work and research and the research side of that was really made possible because of uh, funding I received through the HMRI, the Hunter Medical Research Institute, uh, and it was a very generous donation from the Greater Building Society, which uh, funds my salary to spend a proportion of my time doing research and hopefully being able to improve treatments for stroke. How many people suffer stroke of some kind each year in Australia? Um, there's... Well, the latest figures suggest there's more than uh, 53,000 strokes each year uh, in Australia alone. Uh, and uh, that's expected to rise quite significantly even over the next 10 years or so, mostly due to the ageing of the population. Um, and I think the other interesting statistic is that there's about 350,000 people in Australia who are survivors of stroke. And, you know, that's, that's about the mm. population of Newcastle and Lake Macquarie. Um, that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. What's the ratio, male to female? It, it's close to 50-50, so it affects uh, men and women about equally. Mm. You've mentioned that um, we've got a lot of survivors, or there are a lot of survivors. Um, what's the, the percentage of recovery? Yeah, so um, in terms of surviving and not surviving, mm. um, it's uh, almost a third of people... Uh, will die from from their first stroke uh, mm. within one year anyway. Um, and in terms of recovery, um, it depends how you define <laughs> recovery. But <laughs> if you use the rule of thirds, about a third of people will end up needing assistance with just everyday activities of living, you know, eating, mm. feeding, toileting, all of those sorts of things. About a third are independent for those sorts of things. Um, but, of course, you can be independent in those activities and still not able to return to your job or something like that. Yeah, yeah. What causes a stroke to happen? And I'd like to talk later on about the overall cause, but 
what happens to the brain that, that causes a stroke? So um, there's two major types of stroke. Uh, and one, the less common cause, is caused when there's rupture of a blood vessel in the brain and bleeding into the brain. Um, and that accounts for maybe 15 or 20% of stroke uh, in Australia. The, the most common cause is, is a blockage of a blood vessel in the brain. Um, and depending which blood vessel it is, that uh, affects the part of the brain involved and then the, the symptoms that the person might have. And that's one of the problems in stroke is that the diagnosis can actually be a little bit tricky sometimes mm-hmm. because the, the uh, symptoms can be really quite different from person to person. Is it painful when it happens? Um, you'll notice uh, I qualify a lot of my answers today <laughs> because um, normally it's not. But uh, again, that's variable depending on exactly what's uh, happened. Um, hemorrhagic stroke, so bleeding into the brain, is more often painful than than the blood clot variety of stroke. Um, but uh, but not all of those are painful either. If there is a pain, is it like a headache? Yes, yes, a headache is... Uh, and, and for one particular type of stroke, very sudden onset of a very, very severe pain is the characteristic symptom. Is the patient aware of what's happening at the time? Again, that's variable. Um, Mostly, probably, they are, but what they become aware of, it's not sudden onset of, oh, this has happened, but when they go to try to use a limb, for example, they go to try to pick something up with their hand and they find it doesn't work properly. Mm. And sometimes the part of the brain involved is that that's sort of aware of of that limb, and so sometimes people are totally unaware that, uh, that they even have a problem. So even though they can't move their left arm at all, they don't seem to notice that. It, it doesn't gel for what's happening to them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If there's somebody with them at the time that it happens, what are the indications that it is a stroke for the people who happen to be in the room with them? Yeah. So, so like I said, it can be quite variable. But for the common types of stroke, uh, the important things probably are weakness of one side of the face, so mm-hmm. a droopy face on one side with particularly that is sometimes shown because they start drooling out, mm. out that side of the mouth, weakness of one arm, their speech may become affected, so they mm. either may start slurring their speech for no apparent reason or talking gobbledygook, silly words or words that don't make sense. And, uh, and any of those things can be a sign that, that a stroke is occurring. Does it also affect their sight? It certainly can affect sight. Um, most commonly, people lose vision on one side of the world, mm. N- not in one eye, but on one side of the world, um, although occasionally one or other eye can be affected uh, mm. as well. Does hearing also come in under that? Yeah, hearing is less often affected just because of the way the wiring in the brain is organised, so it's less apparent hearing problems mm. normally. If there is somebody with them, what should they do um, in the first, first part of first aid? Yeah. So the most important thing really is recognising that this might be a stroke and calling an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, interesting work from Melbourne at the National Stroke Research Institute showed that a lot of people do recognise that they're having a stroke or that their loved one's having a stroke, but most often the person they first call is their daughter or their daughter-in-law, <laughs> and then she comes to their house. <laughs> and all of this brings in delay, and, mm. uh, and that's a big problem. Mm. Um, I've heard it said that if you think you're having a heart attack, it's better to end up at the hospital with indigestion than leave it later for a heart attack, which is fatal, um, or could be fatal. Does the same thing apply with a stroke? Absolutely. Um, absolutely, that's true. Um, and, you know, with, with every minute, uh, you're, you're losing brain, uh, brain cells, mm. uh, and the sooner you can get to hospital and get treatment, the better. And the people who we see with the best responses to treatment have often had their stroke in a public place because in mm. that situation someone calls an ambulance straight away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, getting there is very important. And the ambulance crew obviously know what to do if, even if they just suspect it's a, a stroke. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I think our ambulance service is fantastic. They're, they're really very well-trained uh, people and, and uh, enormously experienced and they cope mm. with a lot of difficult things. Um, we work quite closely with them and, and have really fairly recently instituted a program whereby if it's soon after the onset of a stroke, the ambulance officers will pre-notify the hospital that they're bringing someone mm. in and then someone like me with a very experienced stroke nurse will be available to meet, meet them at the door. Mm. Um, and that's important in terms of uh, getting treatment going as quickly as possible. So it's it's quite crucial that they get to hospital and for, get proper treatment as soon as possible? Um, absolutely. So for the most common type of stroke that we talked at, um, there's a very effective therapy, which is clot-dissolving therapy, um, but effectively you have to be at, in hospital within two hours of the onset of symptoms to qualify for that therapy in selected patients. Mm. And the vast majority of stroke patients just don't get to hospital okay. in time. Um, and even within that two hours, the sooner you can get there, the better mm. in terms of outcome. I'm talking today with Dr. Neil Spratt, and the topic is strokes, what they are and how they can be treated. Dr. Spratt, once a patient has arrived at the hospital... You've been notified, he's on his way. What happens to the patient when he comes in the door? Normally they will be assessed very rapidly by the stroke team. That will involve some questions either to the patient or to their relative if they're there. Mm. Um, and so it's often quite helpful for us if the relative comes, comes with them in the mm. ambulance. Um, and they'll be, have a relatively brief uh, physical examination in particular looking at things like strength in arms and legs and weakness of the face and tongue and all of those sorts of things. And then as soon as possible, we'll normally try to get them around to have a CT scan of the mm. brain. Um, and then depending on what that shows, then embark mm. upon treatment with uh, one, one or uh, a number of different therapies. Yeah. Do they usually end up in intensive care in those first few hours? Um, no, in fact, it's relatively rare that stroke patients get admitted to intensive care. Um, so we have a, a dedicated sort of high-intensity stroke care unit. Mm -hmm. um, but um, 
in terms of intensive care, it's normally reserved for people who have problems with breathing uh, and need to be supported on ventilators and so on. And um, the sad reality is for the majority of strokes that if it gets to that sort of stage, then there's very little hope of uh, eventual recovery anyway. Mm. So, so most stroke patients don't, don't get treated in an intensive care. How do you assess the severity of a stroke, apart from um, whether they can hold your hand or talk to you? I mean, as a doctor, what do you see? Yeah, well, in fact, um, whether they can hold your hand and talk to you is, in fact, a large part of it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's not rocket science. Um, and uh, there's a, obviously a little bit more detail to that, mm. and, uh, and we have scoring systems for how well they can do things, uh, how well they can feel, and assess their vision as well mm. and so on. But that is really the key part to assessing mm. severity uh, is, is those sort of basic tests, you know, all put together in a sort of an organised scoring system. Mm. And then other information such as their level of awareness, drowsiness mm. and so on are also quite important. Um, and scanning and so on actually doesn't very add very much to that at all. So it very much is a, a hands-on type thing for those first times in. It is, it is. Yeah. What are the chances of having a second stroke? Again, like everything, it's it's quite variable mm-hmm. um, depending on the cause uh, and the type of the first stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, but somewhere around or just under 10% in the first year, so it's, it's relatively high, mm-hmm. um, and there are various f- things that we can do to re- reduce that risk. Mm. And so we always try to uh, institute everything that we can to prevent second strokes. What's the main cause of a stroke happening? Mm. What in our lifestyle is the biggest risk? So risk factors across the population, probably the most important factor is blood pressure uh, and inadequately controlled blood pressure. Other things that are important are smoking, cigarette mm-hmm. smoking, um, diabetes, elevated cholesterol level, and uh, some irregular heart rhythm, something called mm-hmm. atrial fibrillation is an important risk factor if it's not treated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lifestyle factors such as poor diet and lack of exercise, as well as contributing to all of those other things, mm-hmm. probably also significantly uh, increase your risk. So overall, it's the way we live rather than a trauma that causes a stroke? Yes, as a general rule. um, Very low rates of stroke in most uh, developing countries. If you you get lots of exercise and you don't have too much to eat, um, your chance of having, and you don't smoke, your chance of having a stroke is relatively low. low. Yeah. How much of a problem is being overweight um, a cause, if you like? Yeah, well, being overweight, of course, contributes to all of those risk factors we've, or mm. most of those things we've talked about. So you're more likely to have high blood pressure, you're much more likely to be diabetic, have high cholesterol. Um, and so through all of those things, it's important. It's probably important just on its own as well, but it's often hard to tease these things mm. out. You mentioned about blood pressure, and I've heard varying levels of blood pressure. But for a normal blood pressure, what should it read? Well, a, a plumb normal blood pressure is uh, sort of 120 on 80. Mm. Um, the, the reason you've heard varying levels is probably because the way we look at blood pressure is that there probably isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm. 
so that someone who has no other risk factors, who's otherwise very healthy and has a, a higher blood pressure, their risk of stroke is still not that high and it may not warrant treatment. Whereas someone who's already had a stroke, even if they have what we would otherwise call a normal blood pressure, we know, now know that treating that blood pressure, making it even <laughs> lower, will re- further yeah. reduce their risk of stroke. Yeah. And I guess that the, the weight thing relates back down to what we actually eat, the, the foods and, and no exercise and things. So we should be looking at a low-fat diet and, and those sorts of things. They will help to prevent, but they don't necessarily prevent a stroke, do they? That's right. Um, I think uh, we're probably going more towards now looking at the sort of fat you eat rather than low fat per mm. se. And so monounsaturated fats, olive oil and canola and those sorts of things are probably not harmful. Um, but certainly diets high in saturated fat and in particular mm. diets high in, in lots of red meat are uh, harmful. Um, all of these things are risks and so you know, there's relative benefits and so mm. on. And you can never... Uh, completely prevent something and as you, you as we've discussed there's mm. lots of different risk factors uh, yeah. for stroke you were saying that smoking and and i guess we all know that smoking is is quite high on the on the risk factor um does it um, necessarily follow that if you have been a smoker in the past and given it up that your chances of having a stroke being caused by that earlier smoking habit you know what i'm trying to say is um, your your past behaviour, mm-hmm. does that contribute to a possibility? There's two points there, and I think, um, firstly, in terms of quitting smoking, we know that you can, within two years of quitting smoking, you can halve your excess risk of stroke mm-hmm. from being a smoker. So that's an important point. You can make a big difference by quitting. Right. Um, but the other point is that Stroke is probably caused by lifestyle over our entire lifetimes. So I always tell my patients that they should not only make lifestyle changes themselves, but make sure their children and their grandchildren grow up with good habits Mm. and eat well. What we were feeding our kids, my kids, is not necessarily have done them much good, even if they change their habits now. One of the big issues there is that people become less and less likely to change their habits as they become older. <laughs> and so you d- really develop yeah. your habits, your dietary habits for life often in mm. childhood. Mm. And so I think it's important that um, children grow up with good dietary habits. Yeah. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols, and I'm talking today to Dr. Neil Spratt. Dr. Spratt is a staff specialist neurologist at the John Hunter Hospital. Dr. Spratt, are strokes always associated with the elderly? Certainly not. Uh, Stroke can occur at any age, uh, from newborn babies or even actually probably before birth, uh, all the way through to old age. And about half of them occur in people under 75. But a a significant proportion, about 5% of stroke, occur in people under 45. Mm. So it certainly increases with age but can occur at any age. Oh, I hadn't realised that babies can sort of be born with having had a, a stroke. Can they be as severe in the younger person as they are in the elderly? They certainly can. Um, the advantage to being young is that your powers of recovery are greater. Um, mm. So 
even for as severe a stroke, the eventual recovery tends to be better the younger you are, and, and children are the, the best example of that. So very young children who have strokes can often recover very well even after quite a large stroke. What would cause a, a stroke in a child? Yeah, the factors are quite different in children, and um, they, they can be often related to uh, problems with blood vessels, um, or sometimes related to problems with blood clots forming in the blood itself, and so they can be related to, for example, um, childhood childhood illnesses such as leukaemia and, and other cancers and those sorts of things. Mm. So, so it's a bit different from the adult mm. situation. Mm. If a person has a stroke, a moderate stroke, um, what are the chances of, of them recovering fully, um, uh, or is there always a long-lasting weakness? There's no hard and fast answer again, of course. Um, people tend to continue to recover for, from stroke for quite a long time in terms of what they can do. Mm. So even out to a couple of years, people often will report still improving. Having said that, if you've had a moderate-sized stroke, you're likely to be left with some sort of residual deficit in mm. the longer term. And um, as we discussed, about a third of stroke patients end up needing some assistance, even with uh, sort of normal daily activities. Yeah. Do patients ever fully recover enough to go back to work? Yes, certainly some do, um, and some make total, complete recovery, really, that you couldn't detect any, any problem because mm. there's a lot of variability in, yeah. in the original stroke. Um, and obviously the younger you are... The, the more likely you are to make mm. a really good recovery. Um, and obviously the smaller a stroke you are, the more likely you are to make a good recovery. But there's some famous uh, strokes around, and including a Melbourne football player who had a stroke a year or two ago who I think got back to playing. Yeah, yeah. If someone has a severe stroke um, and they're quite severely handicapped, how do you go about re-educating their brain, which is what it amounts to, isn't it? Yeah, um, look, it's a really good question, and um, I think understanding of that is really only just beginning, and it's one of the areas that I'm quite interested in from a research point of view. But I think the main thing is really trying to retrain them to do things and, and learn new ways to do things, and um, probably just trying trying to do what they can is the main point. Um, and therapy with um, physiotherapists and occupational therapists and speech pathologists can be a great help in, in all of this um, for assistance with you know all, mm. all the whole spectrum of how stroke can affect you. If somebody needs to have physiotherapy, for example, um, is this always provided at the hospital or does it start off with the hospital outpatients or even as an inpatient um, and then they're sort of discharged to continue that later? Yeah. Um, again, there's enormous variability there. More and more we're trying to start the, the physiotherapy and, and occupational therapy and, and all the other therapies as soon as we can after the onset mm. of stroke. Um, and then often it will continue in a rehab hospital setting or in, on a rehabilitation ward. Um, and then it may continue as an outpatient in that setting uh, for example, at something like the Day Hospital, which runs at Rankin Park Hospital. Some people may organise it privately through a private hospital or mm. through a private physiotherapist. 
So there's they once they once they leave hospital, they're not necessarily um, discharged from the hospital. You sort of still keep an eye on them one way or another. Yeah, it depends on the person. I mean, some mm. people really don't need any further therapy by the mm. time they go home. Um, but those who do, yeah, often they, they have ongoing outpatient rehabilitation for some time after they've gone home. Now, if someone is discharged and they're quite um, severely handicapped and they're going to be looked after by a family member or a carer, when they go home or as they go home, is that carer... Um, taught how to look after the patient yeah um that's something that i think the particularly the rehabilitation uh, specialists and uh, wards tend to do quite well um it's something that has really developed probably in relatively recent times but they certainly try to encourage the involvement of family members even during the the inpatient hospital stay mm-hmm. and try to train people up as much as possible um, into what sort of things they're going to have to do when they get home. Um, But obviously, if you're going home with someone with severe handicap, it can still be a big shock to the system, the Mm. the amount of work that's involved. Yeah. Um, And I guess one of the problems would be if they can't communicate, their speech is not as badly affected to being able for the patient to tell the carer what they want. So there must be a, a fair degree of frustration in amongst all of that. There can be a lot of frustration in that situation and it's frustrating for the patient and for the carer um, and, and that can be quite difficult. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that there are some arrangements for sort of respite care, which is really a break for the carer, mm. so someone else to come in so that the carers do get a break. There's never as much as we'd like uh, in that yeah. regard. Because once they go home, it's a 24-hour job, isn't it? It can be. Mm. It can be in mm. some cases, yeah. Mm. Sometimes you see, particularly the, the elderly people, and, and locally I seem to see more men than, than women, um, where they have a definite shuffling gait and, and only one side of their body works. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens because of whichever side of the brain is damaged, and I realise that. But if someone is right-handed, is it more likely to occur to a right-handed on the right-hand side? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't think it really picks their handedness, but weakness on the right-hand side tends to be associated with speech difficulties in all right. in yeah. basically all right-handers and mm. in about half of left-handers as well, um, whereas weakness on the left side, t- speech tends to be spared. That's interesting one, because I guess most of us think, well, if their speech is affected their speech is affected and that's it. You mm. don't take it any further. Mm. It's because the speech is controlled on, on one side, one of, the side of the brain. Yeah. Are there services available in all the states that are you know, easily got at? In terms of... Uh, help and, help, and, yeah. and information too? There's stroke recovery associations in all of the states um, and there's local branches in, in all metropolitan areas and in a lot of country areas as well. Um, mm. That's one advantage of a common illness is that there's a lot of people around um, and and those organisations can be particularly helpful and uh, you can look them up on the internet or in the local telephone directory. And it's called the Stroke Recovery? Mostly they're referred to as the the State Stroke Mm. Recovery Association, so New South Wales Stroke Recovery Association. Um, And another useful uh, source of information is the National Stroke Foundation, uh, which have a very uh, 
informative website as well. Now, if someone needs to have equipment like chairs and things for bathing, um, they can be hired rather than have to go out and buy them? Uh, yes, those sorts of things can often be hired, and often that's organised through a rehabilitation hospital. I think there are also private sources of uh, hire of those sorts mm. of things. Depending on what sort of equipment it is, some of the equipment it's cheaper just to buy it. Yeah. Is there any special advice you have for us? Really for those in, in terms of stroke prevention, the, the major advice I'd give people is that you know, adults, particularly if you're sort of over 45 or so, that you should get your blood pressure checked regularly at least every year or two and that if it's high treat it and and make sure it's treated properly. Mm. Make sure that it, you're getting it back down to a normal level. Quit smoking, lead a healthy healthy lifestyle, um, you know, get exercise, eat well, and you prevent not only stroke but also heart disease. So that's two of the three major killers in our society. I've been talking today to Dr Neil Spratt, Star Specialist Neurologist at the John Hunter Hospital and Stroke Research Fellow at the University of Newcastle. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us and, uh, and for giving us your, your time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Iris. Thank you for listening and until the next time we meet, on behalf of all the team, this is Iris Nichols saying bye-bye for now.